Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Filter. On this show, we recognize that the world can be a confusing place to live in. And so what I seek to do on this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. For decades, Christians in China have been oppressed and persecuted by a communist state. In spite of this opposition, the underground church there has continued to grow and thrive. We frequently hear the stories of their persecutions and courage, but it's a rare privilege to get to learn from the leaders of the Chinese church. That's why I am so excited about a new book coming out called Faithful Disobedience and the opportunity in this episode to get to talk to the editor of this book, Hannah Nation. In this conversation, we learn about some of the leaders of the Chinese house church movement and also about what they believe and teach. Hannah Nation is the managing director of the Center for House Church Theology, a writer and student of missions history and world Christianity. She is inspired by this historical moment and the privilege of witnessing a new chapter in church history unfold across China. Before we get into this episode, let me remind you, if you have not yet already, to subscribe to our email list so that you don't miss out on any new content that we have coming out. Just click the link in the description below to go to the show notes and you can sign up uh, for the email list on my website. Also, be sure that you're subscribed to Filter wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss out on any future episodes that we release. Just subscribe to Filter wherever you get your podcasts, whether that be YouTube, Apple, or Spotify, so that you can make sure you get all those episodes. Lastly, if you are helped by this episode or any of the other uh, content that we put out, it would greatly help us if you leave Filter a rating and review and share this show with your friends. Leave Filter a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and also write a review on Apple Podcasts. Whenever you take these simple steps, it only takes a minute of your time, but it greatly helps us to get the message of biblical clarity out to more people. Well, without any further delay, let's jump into this conversation that I got to have with Hannah Nation. Hannah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm glad to have you on. I've been really looking forward to getting to meet you and talk about this book ever since I saw it coming up on IVP's um, publishing calendar. And so glad to have you on today. Get Let's get started by just talking about your history and how you got to where you are today working with the Center for House Church Theology. Yeah. Um, well, it has definitely been a long and winding road. Um, not something that I necessarily anticipated uh, doing throughout my life, um, but this is where the Lord has brought me. I, I first went to China in 2005. Um, I went really almost on a whim. <laughs> I, um, I, you know, I had a lot of friends who um, went to various places because they had kind of had a lifelong interest in it. I really hadn't, um, but I had some friends uh, from college who had gone and taught English the summer before, and I heard all about their experiences. And then I had um, my dad is a professor at, at a large university in the sciences, and he had a Chinese grad student who became a Christian um, around the same time. So all of a sudden I had these things happening, and I just got really curious and I thought, oh, I'd like to see the Great Wall and maybe I'll go teach English too. So I went and, um, 
You know, China is, it's just a, a huge country with a huge population. And I got there and I realized, wow, I know nothing about this place. Um, there's a whole world here that I know nothing about. I've never had any experiences with. And I knew the church was growing rapidly and it just blew me away um, thinking about how it just it seemed so tangible how much the next chapter of church history um, was being written there is being written there today. And it just captivated me. And basically over the next 20 years almost, um, I have continued to be involved in serving and ministering to Chinese in different ways. Um, but about five years ago, I became uh, involved with efforts to um, kind of reverse the this, the flow of blessing and um, working to uh, translate and publish uh, theology and preaching from the Chinese house churches for the global church, um, really just out of the belief that um, what the Lord is doing there and what our Chinese brothers and sisters are talking about and writing about mm -hmm. um, not only is encouraging for them and beneficial for them, but that it can be a great encouragement to churches outside of China as well. Interesting. So you're primarily translating from Chinese to English to publish their resources and what's going on here. But if I heard you right, are you also publishing resources to be used in China as well? So I'm not involved with that. I have um, co-workers or people that I'm connected to who um, do work with resources for the Chinese church. Okay. But my focus is really um, bringing content out from China um, for the rest of the world. And we do that It's with a group called the Center for House Church Theology. And um, we're essentially a group of... Chinese and you know Western um, scholars and writers who are working on this project to share Chinese voices with the global church. Interesting. So I'm guessing one of the products of the work that you guys are doing is the book that we're talking about today called uh, Faithful Faithful Disobedience. Correct. Um, yep. But. Uh, what else do you guys do? Like, if people are interested in finding the resources that y'all are making, mm -hmm. uh, are you? Do you have other books, or are you publishing articles, videos? Yeah, so we have published several articles. Um, these are translations of articles written by Chinese pastors or scholars. Um, they are free on our website. And they cover a range of topics. Um, some of them have talked about uh, themes very similar to faithful disobedience, um, themes along um, political theology or public theology. Um, but also we've published essays on very different topics, such as um, gender or things like um, contextualization and worldview. Um, so we have quite an interesting range. We've published, I think, about eight articles. Um, we will be coming out with more next year. Um, but 
we also do published books. Um, Faithful Disobedience is our second book. We published a book um, earlier this year called Faith in the Wilderness, and that is a it's pretty different from Faithful Disobedience. Um, it's a much more lay level book that I would say anyone could pick up and use in a church small group or college Bible study. Um, and it's really, it's a collection of sermons from pastors preached through the most intense parts of the 2020, uh, or 2020, wow, 2020, um, uh, pandemic. And, um, it touches on a lot of themes of just suffering and the hope that we have in redemption, um, as we experience suffering. So, yeah, so we we're poised to, um, probably be publishing at least one book per year moving forward. Um, We have a lot of content that we're excited to bring out from China and share with the rest of the world. Yeah, awesome. Well, for anyone who's listening and wanting to check out some of those resources, I'll have all of that that you just mentioned linked in the show notes. So just go down to the link in the description to go to the show notes and you can find the book, website, and so on. But let's talk about Faithful Disobedience, this one that's coming out here in a couple of weeks. Tell us just about the background of this book, not just in terms of uh, your editorial work getting out, but um, the occasions that led to the content of the book. Yeah. So Faithful Disobedience is a collection of writings, uh, most of which come from a pastor named Wang Yi. Um, he is a um, reformed pastor in southwest China. Um, he himself is a very uh, interesting person. He, Before he became a Christian, um, he was a very prominent human rights lawyer and scholar, legal scholar um, in China. And um, he essentially uh, became a Christian in the early 2000s and very soon after that um, became involved in pastoring and leading um, uh, a house church called uh, Early Rain. And um, yeah, Wang Yi, he's a even before he became a Christian, he had a very active mind, um, very uh, active writer, um, especially online. Um, a lot of writing takes place online in China. And um, when he became a Christian, he didn't stop writing. <laughs> um, he really uh, just turned his intellectual abilities uh, to thinking through the application of the gospel to all sorts of different things, but uh, definitely to the question of the house church in China and um, just really the uh, legal and political state of the house church in China. Um, He has been very outspoken um, on his positions and um, some would would consider him too outspoken on his positions. Um, that, of course, is you know a matter that's up for debate and is highly debated within China, China and the Chinese house churches. But um, 
probably the most one of the most notable things about Wang Yi is that um, in 2018 um, he was arrested and um, his entire church was uh, essentially shut down. Um, in December of 2018, there was a very large uh, orchestrated a- attack on the church. Um, the church's property was confiscated. Um, all of the leadership of the church was arrested and um, held at length. Um, and then kind of ongoing for several weeks, um, roughly half of the church's members um, faced either arrest or harassment of some kind. Wang Yi um, has been sentenced to nine years in jail. Um, This is the longest jail sentence given to a house church pastor in several decades. Um, So it's very notable He was arrested for um, subversion of the state, which is a political charge and um, and and a very it's a very severe uh, charge. And so he remains incarcerated. Um, There is not a whole lot of uh, information about his well-being and how he's doing. Um, It it has been reported that. His wife um, was able to visit him for the first time last year, um, but obviously um, he remains uh, held and in need of prayer. This book came about. Um, well, it, it's a it has a there's a long story behind how this book came about. Um, mm-hmm. So we you know, had already been involved in translating what we considered noteworthy uh, things that he was writing um, and working to publish them. Um, But before his arrest even, um, we came to understand that uh, he had compiled uh, something that he called uh, his house church manifesto. This was a collection of writings, uh, not only his own writings, but writings of other prominent house church pastors in China, mostly from Beijing. And uh, he compiled, he put these writings together into what he called this manifesto. And it's basically just a a long uh, discussion of why these churches uh, desire to remain house churches rather than becoming part of the Chinese state church. One thing that a lot of people don't understand about Christianity in China is that there is an official above the ground state church. Um, Not all churches are house churches in China. And there's been this long ongoing debate really about whether um, the house churches should join the state church or not. Mm. Um, it became clear that Wang Yi wanted this manifesto to be published and um, to be shared beyond China. And we started thinking about um, how that might be done. Um, But eventually we realized we had enough writings of his translated that they really, um, we could make a bigger book than just this shorter manifesto. Mm -hmm. And so um, we 
compiled all of these writings that really uh, explain who he is, his positions on the role of the church in society, um, and we put them together as a book. Yeah, interesting. Can you help us to understand, I, I, I think this goes to understanding and appreciating the book, is uh, help us to understand what is uh, what kind of religious activities are allowed in China today and just what is the environment like yeah. uh, in China today versus what it was like in, you know, more Maoist China and, yes. uh, yeah. and, and so on. So how that's changed over the decades. Yeah, that's a really important question. Um, so obviously um, the history of Christianity in China is, is very complicated, <laughs> um, very complex. But um, today, today in China, estimates are that, um, well, the, the low-end numbers that you'll hear are that there are 70 to 80 million Christians in China. Um, the higher the higher estimates are, you know, well above 100 million Christians. Um, that's a lot of people. <laughs> that's a very yeah. large church. Um, and even as a percentage of the Chinese population, that's significant because um, it's probably hovering somewhere around 5% of the population, um, yeah. which is often a very important uh, percentage missiologically. Um, so, as a you know, as a baseline for understanding Christianity in China, it's important to understand that um, we're not talking about a small church. Um, we're not talking about um, a church that is you know numerically um, uh, insignificant. <laughs> um, this is a pretty large church at this point. Um, politically, um, in China, there is what would be called freedom of religion. Um, there is not necessarily an effort to eradicate all spiritual practice or religious belief in China today. Those are things that definitely occurred, um, especially at the height of the Cultural Revolution. But today, no one is necessarily trying to um, weed out religious life from China. The kind of burning question that... Uh, exists for all religions in China is their relationship to the CCP, the, the communist, the Chinese Communist Party, and in essence, their relationship with the political realities and rulers of China. Um, the CCP is not opposed to people having religious belief, but they are opposed to anything that challenges their authority in China um, and challenges um, what they would consider to be the political and social cohesion and unity of China. And so um, it, it's not hard to go from there to seeing why religious practice um, often feels threatening for the CCP. Um, and then you could also guess maybe is threatening <laughs> at times yeah. to the CCP. Um, this is why you will see such harsh crackdowns on not just Christianity and the churches, but um, various other religions as well. Um, for example, the Uyghurs, 
um, a lot of the conflict there is not necessarily strictly religious, but it's a conflict over authority and cultural unity. Um, so one of the ways in which the CCP has tried to allow for religious life in China but yet maintain its authority and its control is by establishing um, state uh, regulated or, or state um, sanctioned churches or uh, affiliations for different religions. So there is a state affiliated Catholic structure and there is a state affiliated Protestant structure. And what birthed the house churches in China all the way back in the 1950s was essentially a rejection of participating in the state church. And that has fueled a long-lasting debate between the state churches and the house churches. And that is exactly the debate that Wang Yi um, speaks to so much in his book is um, is it acceptable to have a state church? Is it acceptable to um, allow the governing authorities to have um, any or varying amounts of, of authority over the church? Um, and, and his book addresses those questions, mm -hmm. essentially. Yeah, so the state-sanctioned church is called the Three-Self Patriotic Movement. Can you help us to understand what that is? The The name itself is yeah. so strange to any of us who are not familiar with it. So just what is that all about, and how yeah. does this state-sanctioned church operate? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the Three-Self Patriotic Movement, or the, the acronym you'll hear is TSPM, um, Again, this was birthed in the 1950s, right after the communists came to power. And even though it's a very um, unusual name for uh, maybe American ears, um, I think the, the three selves that it's referring to are not things that we wouldn't necessarily say, oh, those are bad ideas. Um, they, they reference a much older missiological principle that um, churches should be um, self-governed, self-funded, and self-propagating. And this was really so much of um, the uh, momentum for something like the Three Self Church was really in reaction to um, the history of Western missions in China, prior to the 1950s. And across the board, theologically, whether um, these they were in uh, more liberal-leaning theological churches or um, more conservative, fundamentalist-influenced churches within China, um, in the first half of the 20th century, there was just a lot of movement to separate the churches, the Chinese churches, indigenous churches, from Western oversight. Mm. Um, there was a pretty significant feeling that um, a lot of the missionary oversight was problematic for a lot of various reasons. Um, and so you have figures like um, Wang Mingdao, who's considered the father of the house churches, who even well before the communists were in the picture, um, he was forming 
an independent church that was completely independent of Western missionaries. Um, but when the communists came in, essentially the three self church was a way to kind of formalize that or codify it and to say, um, you may not have, uh, ties or connections to outside forces. Mm. Um, the Chinese church must be for the Chinese only. And it was a way to purge uh, Chinese Christianity of its connections to outsiders, which even though you could say there were a lot of good, positive reasons for that to happen, there also obviously it was a way to um, to cut off <laughs> ties to the Western world that the communists yeah. were suspicious of. So the Three Self Church is, um, I think like all state churches, it's very complicated. Um, it, it does submit to the oversight of the CCP. Um, it is um, very open in its objectives to um, have a Christianity that is um, supportive of or openly patriotic um, of China and the CCP. And so um, kind of uh, you'll see a lot of things that, um, you know, you, you might see things like Chinese flags in sanctuaries or, um, you know, the singing of patriotic songs in churches. Um, but you'll also see a lot of things that um, are faithful to the gospel um, it's not necessarily, um, you know, it's not devoid of the gospel, <laughs> I would say. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a complicated, it's a complicated reality as any yeah. state church is. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah. So the communist party's interest isn't just religious, but also, uh, wanting to keep out any Western influences. And that's something that I'd never heard before. Um, I'd always heard that their interest in persecuting Christians was only religious, was only theological, that they wanted to um, uh, implement an atheistic state. So that's different. I, that's something that I had never heard before. But with the three selfs statement, self-governing does seem to be undermined by the fact that it's state-sanctioned, right? So like exactly how much... Exactly how self-governed is the three self-patriotic movement and how much state influence and oversight is there? That's a question I, it would be probably hard for me to answer. I don't consider myself an expert on the three self-church. Um, I think in terms of outside influence, that non-Chinese influence, then it would be self-governed fully. Um, it is a very Chinese-led church. Um, there, It does not have um, oversight by outside churches um, in other countries, for example. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of internally in its relationship with the state, um, it, it would be hard for me to give kind of a, you know, um, you know, oh, half and half or <laughs> um, that kind of answer. Um, I think, especially in China, a lot of things are are not 
transparent. Um, and so I think it, it, it probably the best way to, to say it is that I would think the higher up you go in the three self church, the closer it will be, um, to state authorities. Um, the more local it is, the more localized you're talking, there's probably more independence. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's generally true of most anything in China. Um, that would be true just of, for example, regional governments in China, um, the local, the local police station, um, d you know, doesn't really necessarily have a direct responsibility to Beijing. Um, but when you're talking about a higher, a higher governor or a higher authority, then he'll have closer ties to, um, the central state for sure. Yeah. But the fact that it is still state sanctioned, I'm sure, is what caused uh, Wang Yi, Wang Yi, Wang Yi, Wang Yi, uh, to write his manifesto to explain yes. uh, to explain why they are um, they choose to be separate. What was his goal before we really get into the content of his manifesto and of the book? What was his goal in writing it? Well, I think. Um, for Wang Yi, as much as I can speak for him, um, he, well, I think there are two things. He really burns with a desire to see more people know Jesus. Um, he's deeply committed to evangelism. I think the second thing is he um, really believes in the church as God's primary way of um, bringing the kingdom of God to earth. And so he um, is very interested in this question of what is the church and what is it for in our world. And so all of his um, writings on this topic and all of his conflict with the state church comes down to this question of who's the head of the church um, who's the authority of over the church, and how does that then infiltrate down to these questions of what is the church for, what are we doing, um, which ties to his commitment to evangelism. And so um, in writing the manifesto, I, I really think, you know, I don't have this necessarily from his lips, <laughs> um, but... I think that he, all, all of the writings in the book, I really think he is writing more to other churches in China than he is necessarily writing to uh, the Communist Party itself mm. um, or the state church itself. I think he writes to try to help um, Christians in China understand who they are and what God has called them to be. And um, that then involves these other players, <laughs> so to say, yeah. or these other parties. But I think his primary audience is really um, churches and pastors um, who he wants to help um, understand uh, the, what God has called them to be and what God has made them to be. Yeah, so it's not similar to like Tertullian's uh, apologetic. The, the 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 manifesto that he wrote 
as a defense of Christianity to the persecuting Roman state. This sounds like a lot more similar, and I was getting this, um, getting this feeling when I was reading it. Uh, it feels a lot more similar to uh, churches in sort of the Reformation era, era that were uh, the underground Protestant churches who were being persecuted by, um, you know, this, this partnership between uh, the Catholic Church and the state, and they were writing their defenses for resistance and their argument for uh, religious liberty. Yeah, I think it it would be somewhere in the middle. Um, I think there's a little bit of both in his writings um, because I think, yeah, his his primary audience and his intended audience is the other churches, but he's he knows <laughs> that he's being listened to um, by uh, the authorities and, you know, by those who would be opposed to him. Yeah. And so he does talk quite a lot, um, especially in the uh, the writings and the latter portions of the book. He talks a lot about um, persecution as the church's apologetic. And uh, he and many other pastors that I uh, have heard from across China talk about their interrogations or their times uh, before judges as their time to preach the gospel. Um, wow. So, you know, I think it's, you could even think back maybe to. Um, to, you know, Stephen or the apostles, um, where these uh, court <laughs> uh, confrontations or these confrontations with the authorities and the, and the powers are, are used as a time to clarify theology mm -hmm. um, and to clarify what is believed about the nature of the church. Yeah. Yeah, I think that a lot of Christians are unaware of the really deep and long-stretching uh, tradition that exists in Christianity of a resistance theory mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. of talking about uh, when do we submit to government, when do we not, when is it appropriate to resist, um, what makes the government legitimate, illegitimate. We see that going all the way back to, like, as you mentioned before, in the New Testament in the book of Acts, whenever we see um, the apostles resisting the rulers by continuing to preach the gospel. We see it in ancient Rome. We see it in, as I said before, throughout the Reformation mm -hmm. uh, in the 20th century in the underground churches throughout the, um, the various Soviet bloc countries. Um, and so this is really a contribution to that long yes. uh, history. And so in Wang Yi's writing, what are his theological justifications for resistance to the state? Yeah, well, part of what we try to do in the book is to show some of the um, evolution of his thinking on this topic. Mm -hmm. um, I f definitely would say that the earlier writings, uh, the writings that he included in the manifesto, which is the first third of the book, um, are much more grounded in a lot of traditional, um, just Western, you know, uh, rights theory, basically. Um, 
But as he progresses towards 2018 and his his arrest, um, really both his ecclesiology, his understanding of what the church is and his definition of the church, and also most importantly, his eschatology, um, his thoughts on where we are going and where we are going as the church start to uh, influence his thinking on this question um, far more, I think, than um, you know people like like John Locke, for example, um, who who is a clear influence. But the closer to twenty eighteen you move, the more these other things become more influential. And essentially, um, I w- the crux of his position is that um, the church is called to submit to the state fully. Um, And we disobey (laughs) um, when um, the state is requiring of us um, something that limits the ability of other people to hear the gospel. Um, So I think uh, the Wang Yi and a lot of the house church pastors really have begun to see the church as the primary gift of God to the cities that they live in. And so um, when uh, that gift from the Lord um, is, when the state is trying to stop that gift from the Lord, you could say, um, it requires them to, to disobey. And one of the things that there's a statement that Wang Yi makes in um, his last thing that he wrote before he was arrested. It's called um, My Declaration of Faithful Disobedience. That's where the title from the book uh, for the book comes from. Mm-hmm. But he makes this statement that what he is doing is not fighting for political rights, um, but testifying to the reality of another world. And I think that to me is very interesting to sit with and mull over uh, coming out of the tradition of, uh, you know, Western political rights that Mm -hmm. I come out of, um, because I think that challenges a lot of um, our heart disposition for why we do what we do when we Mm -hmm. disobey. Um, So I think that, you know, People have have asked me, do I think he he really like is what he's saying really true? Like, is he really not fighting for political rights? Because <laughs> um, it seems like he is. Right. Um, but I think that when you read his body of work, which we are asking people to do, um, this question of testifying to another world and testifying to another reality um, comes to the forefront. And I think it challenges us because there's the question that it leaves me with is, you know, how much have we fought for political protections for the church for our own comfort as opposed to um, wanting them or protecting them for the good of the world Mm -hmm. and the ability of the church to be that gift to the city um, that Wang Yi believes it is and should be. Um, and I think that is 
it's it's something to sit with <laughs> you know it's something to to uh let you and make you feel uncomfortable a little bit mm-hmm. yeah I, I i agree i think that is a good question and it's one that um really can get us to check our the order of our affections and Mm -hmm. are we primarily driven by a calling from god uh driven by the spirit or primarily just driven by comfort um, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and fear of losing conveniences and and conveniences are not bad things no right those are those are very good things to desire um but yeah of course we can become just more selfishly driven by those things than than the call of the gospel well, and I think Wang Yi is so influenced by um, this idea of walking the way of the cross. Um, this is a term that you hear quite a lot in the house churches. Um, it goes back to the first generation of house church fathers in the 1950s. And um, they're very bold in saying that um, the Christian's call is to walk the way of the cross with our Lord. And because Jesus suffered in this life on earth, we are called to participate in that suffering. Mm -hmm. And I think um, that has to be kept in mind when thinking about um, his disobedience because Again, it comes down to this question of what is the motivation? What is this for? You know, um, if it is to escape the life of the cross, um, then that I think Wang Yi would be very bold in saying that's a a wrong motivation. That's an incorrect motivation. Um, But if it's out of an understanding that um, we walk the same path with Christ and whether you end up in jail for nine years or not, um, Christ calls you to suffer with him. Um, I think that that gets closer to the motivations that he's talking about and the motivations he wants others to consider. Yeah. Yeah, I think so often the temptation to not walk the way of the cross w- is going to look like just complying. Mm-hmm. With a government that tells us to go against um, go against the gospel or go against scripture or to defy what we believe um, and to just comply with it, and so uh, this resistance that he's shown and that others in China are showing that we've seen in other places in the world uh, is walking the way of the cross. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you see when you read the the writings of people who have tried to work out. Uh, resistance theory throughout the the ages and in different places they always try to figure out the problem of uh, when to resist and when not to right because you can see all kinds of infringements on just liberties that we ought to have in life in a maybe you live in a totalitarian state but you have to pick and choose <laughs> what when is appropriate to resist and when not to uh, it'll be foolish and not help the gospel at all to just resist to everything. Uh, so, so how do, how do they work that out in their house churches and uh, in their writings and thinking? Yeah, well, I will you know say again. He Wang Yi does maintain um, that 
Christians are called to submit to the ruling authorities uh, pretty extensively. (laughs) Um, uh, He states very clearly that his goal is not to overthrow the regime or to um, um, to change laws even. Um, but he does believe his call is to speak prophetically regarding, um, you know, in his words, the wicked that is done by a government. And so, I mean, I can read a quote. He says, um, let's see. The calling that I have received requires me to use nonviolent methods to disobey those human laws that disobey the Bible and God. Um, my Savior Jesus Christ also requires me to joyfully bear all costs for disobeying wicked laws. Mm. And so um, he uh, is committed to nonviolence. Um, but at the same time, this is where that understanding of the cross comes in. Um, he believes that his call is to maintain the church and to maintain the church at all costs. But he also believes that it is his call to accept the costs of maintaining the church <laughs> at all costs. Um, and um, a, a, with that, a commitment to doing so nonviolently. Um, and so that is, uh, I think, an exceptionally hard position to take. Um, and, you know, obviously he uh, is receiving you know the full the full extent in many ways um he's he's being tested on that as we speak so yeah yeah you said before that there are some in the house church movement in china who thought that he was too outspoken in Mm -hmm. debates on that is that and uh is that a part of this debate on when to resist when not to resist how much is too much resistance where you're actually hurting the greater cause. Yeah, I think, um, so for most of the history of the house church, um, the house church, house churches have been very, very quiet. Um, they have not necessarily, uh, spoken out publicly. Um, they've, um, you know, Essentially, from the birth of the house churches through, for sure, the Cultural Revolution um, until relatively recently, um, the house churches were were very hidden. <laughs> you know, they mm-hmm. um, they weren't necessarily in the public square <laughs> talking about their their theological positions on yeah. the state. Um, a lot of those things really started to change with. Especially the the movement from um, you know for the first many decades, the house churches were mostly in the rural areas, um, beginning in the 1990s until today. Um, the demographics are changing significantly, and um, the house churches grew rapidly in the urban centers of China. Um, they've also been growing among educated thinkers. Um, and so theology has just become, I would say the house churches have always been theological. There's no church that's not theological somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have become much more theologically engaged and productive. 
And so um, part of that has involved, you know, theologizing and writing and speaking more publicly on these things. Um, I think a lot of people struggle with that. Um, a lot of people struggle with taking a kind of public uh, position <laughs> on these things. Um, the kind of common allegation against Wang Yi is that he was poking the bear. Um, and so a lot of people would say it was it's needless. You don't have to poke the CCP. Yeah. Um, so and 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 he in many places replies and says, um, that this is what is called of some people. Um, I think very interestingly, he is very aware that um, this calling is not for all of the churches across China, all of the pastors across China. In fact, there's one... um, there's one really interesting interview that he gave in which he basically says that he believes um, the large churches, house churches in China, um, his church had over 500 people attending um, before it was shut down. Um, these kind of larger uh, house churches, um, they when they are public and when they are bolder, um, they kind of can protect <laughs> their their public nature protects um, the smaller churches in riskier areas. Mm. It would be interesting to see if his thinking on that has changed at all. Those statements were made obviously before his arrest and um, the dismantling of his church, but um, it's an interesting thought. Just thinking about. Um, his his interest in being public for the good of smaller churches, um, and as he talks about it as taking the heat. They'll take the heat so that it's not put onto other smaller churches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And once again, it's something that's not uncommon if you read a history of resistance theory in mm-hmm. the church, um, or even of the uh, like larger resistance to communism in Eastern Europe and in the Soviet former uh, so former Soviet countries there's always a discussion among those who are in the underground over where do we poke where do we not poke when is it better mm-hmm. to just keep your head down mm-hmm. um, you know because I, I think we Americans can kind of get like a real cowboy attitude and yes <laughs> and, and think that no you never put your head down you're never quiet you always always poke and fight and stand up for your rights and like okay it's a good sentiment um but it's very different from the reality of living these situations and they understand that there's times that you can actually um uh have uh, you can be counterproductive and mm-hmm. uh do more harm than good and for your local community and the greater movement so yeah really interesting um, speaking of where we are, what do you think Americans can learn from the example of uh, Wang Yi, the others who write in this book, and from uh, from reading a book like Faithful Disobedience? Yeah, I love that question. Uh, it's one I think about a lot. Um, well, I think there there are two things I'll say. I think um, you know, for me personally. Um, I think just the all uh, everything that he talks about 
um, regarding the Christian's call to suffer with Christ um, has really um, just started to influence me quite a lot in recent years. Um, I think that it's just not something you hear talked a lot about in the the U.S. Um, in the Western world. We're very averse to suffering. Um, we're very averse to that being a part of our calling. And I think that um, we talk a lot about the cross and we talk a lot about bearing the cross. Um, but I think we need our brothers and sisters from parts of the world where that is a very prominent reality in their lives um, to help us understand what that really means and uh, to really dig into some of that. I think with regards to um, the relationship to the state, I really think um, just this this commitment to all um, disobedience, all resistance, essentially being about testifying to the gospel and the reality of the kingdom of God um, is deeply challenging. And I think that um, it's a helpful thing for us to, um, to have a perspective that says, even when you do poke the bear, <laughs> even when you do resist, um, you are called to do it for the good of others, um, not for the protection of yourself and not for the protection of your own rights. Um, I think that is really challenging to a Western perspective on these things. Um, we are so quick to um, protect our rights simply for the sake of protecting ourselves, <laughs> I think. Um, and uh, the house churches that I listen to, um, they're so committed to understanding um, things like civil disobedience as something that's done for the good of others. Um, it's not done for the protection of themselves. And so... Um, I think that's that's just um yeah that that is very different from um a lot of things that I think are, are influential today and um and and it gets to our hearts right <laughs> it kind of takes us out of this realm of talking about political rights and pol pol political theory on a very theoretical um, level mm -hmm. um, and a very systematic level, and it brings it down to this heart level um, that I think is is really needed. I think one of the best examples I can think of of, of how this you know works itself out is that um, so many of the Chinese Christians that I know who have spent time in jail talk about um, their time in jail as a time to both repent of their own idols and to preach the gospel among people who probably would never hear the gospel other otherwise, wow. you know. And I, and I think that that's just, you know, I can't think of, you know, I don't, I don't know that I would have that perspective if someone came to me today <laughs> and was going to arrest me um, 
for my faith commitments. I, you know, I think I'd be hard pressed to say um, my first response would be, okay, this is a time for me to repent of my idols of um, success and comfort and to prepare to go preach the gospel to those who have never heard it before and probably wouldn't have the opportunity to otherwise. So, yeah. Yeah, that's one of the benefits of reading from these other Christians around the globe who've been in very different circumstances than us. And I do think it's a mm-hmm. good question to look at the heart whenever we consider resistance, uh, civil mm-hmm. disobedience, uh, or even protest. I think it's good to yeah. look at the heart um, because we yeah. can very much be driven by selfishness um, or uh, even by grievances yeah. you know, rather than a real desire for the common good and for the good of the church and of the gospel. And so, yeah, yeah, I think it's great. And that's, Wang Yi actually says at one point that um, if your your disobedience is causing your heart to turn to sin, such as, you know, bitterness, selfishness, yada, yada, um, that 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 is a sign that this is not from the Lord, you know, Mm -hmm. that... um, that true faithful disobedience um, does not uh, go against the fruits of the spirit um, in the individual's heart. Wow, that's good. Well, there's a lot for us to learn from this book and from the Chinese House Church, and so I'm really thankful for the work that you guys are doing at the center and also for this book that you have coming out. Once again, the title of it is Faithful Disobedience. And it'll be coming out in the next couple of weeks. And I just thank you so much for the work that you've done. And thank you for joining us to talk about it here on Filter today. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, Please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch up the latest from me, you can go to my website, AaronChamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast to the